Good day and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. We start a brand new season, the eighth season, where we will be looking at films adapted from novels. And to debut season eight, I thought I would start with probably one of the most famous adaptations in cinema history. One of the most successful films to grace our screens, a film that everyone has seen or just heard of. And the proof is in the pudding with the money, the glory, and the legacy this film leaves behind. So for episode 71, we shall be looking at the 1993 monster adventure film, Jurassic Park. Adapted from a novel by Michael Crichton and directed by none other than Steven Spielberg, the film stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Samuel L. Jackson and Richard Attenborough. Jurassic Park, 65 million years in the making. The tagline for the movie actually acts as a joke to the long process of the mosquito being trapped in amber before being discovered, which is the key to how they were able to produce dinosaurs in the modern world. Coincidentally, the marketing for this film cost exactly $6.5 million, one of the most vigorous marketing campaigns ever conducted for a movie. Now, part of the campaign was, of course, the famous font with the T-Rex logo underneath, which acts as a contradiction in actual fact, because the T-Rex, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, is a dinosaur from the Cretaceous period, not the Jurassic period. Not even $6.5 million could fix that. I think when someone asked the author, Michael Crichton, why did they go along with that design, he simply just said, I don't even know. It just looked cool to me, and that, in a nutshell, is how Hollywood thinks. It aims for authenticity, but above all, it aims to look damn cool. And I must say, despite my moral judgments with accuracy, they succeeded heavily and famously because this film was aiming for one thing and one thing only. To show a monster movie that looks believable, that doesn't look fake, and that was the whole vision of Steven Spielberg. I mean, he had done E.T., Close Encounters, he did Jaws. And when looking back at the creatures, the aliens, the sharks... We can tell now they are clearly fake, but with Jurassic Park, a film that was made almost 30 years ago, it still looks credible, looks acceptable, and that's why we are reminiscing over Jurassic Park even after 30 years. So the story was written by an American author, like I said, called Michael Crichton, made famous predominantly from his novel Jurassic Park, but it's actually quite an interesting fella. He's a very interesting guy. First off, his name is John Crichton. Michael is his middle name, much like Brad Pitt's middle name is William, so his name is William Bradley Pitt. Sorry, going slightly off topic there. But yeah, anyway, Michael Crichton, he's got an MD, which is a doctor of medicine at Harvard University, but he never practiced law, instead decided to write novels instead, which is a very big sidestep from uh, graduating from Harvard. The one thing he does or was going to do with his knowledge of medicine is create and write a film, which you may have heard of called ER. Before that though, directing a few, you know, before he tried directing a few of his novels, The Great Train Robbery, Congo, Sphere, another film of Samuel Jackson, amongst others. Anyway, ER was going to be a film directed by Steven Spielberg. And he mentioned this to Spielberg and he had just finished a novel about dinosaurs. And Spielberg was like, oh, you've just finished a novel about dinosaurs. That's interesting. So he read the book in like a week. And the second he finished it, he bought the rights to the book immediately after for like $1.5 million, one of the biggest amounts up front. And he said, look, we're making this movie now. Do you want to adapt your novel into a shooting script? And he said, no, I'm okay. I'll let you, you know, you do that. I'll, I'll just uh, be an advisor. And they both left the set of ER. Just no one to run it since Crichton and Spielberg had jumped ships, like two kids to work on some fanboy movie. But, you know, it was a dinosaur movie, so you have to give them their due credit. Luckily, though, ER didn't become a film. Instead, it became a very famous TV series, which kick-started George Clooney's career. So in a way, Jurassic Park helped put George Clooney on the map. 
So his idea for dinosaurs started in 1983 when he wrote this screenplay about a Harvard graduate like himself who, who just recreated a dinosaur. Realising, though, that the money you would need to do genetic research and the motive to create a dinosaur, he added this amusement park idea with a billionaire and even had the original story told from a child's perspective. But then he changed that later on. He actually, you know, he was just stumped when trying to write this novel because he wasn't sure how to bring back dinosaurs. It wasn't actually until 1981 did Michael Crichton hear about insects stuck in amber that had been preserved and they preserved, you know, animals' DNA from that time, which was the breakthrough he needed to explain how to bring back dinosaurs. However, realistically, according to New Scientist magazine at the time, DNA in insects break down a lot quicker because of their size. So it's actually impossible that the dinosaur DNA would still be there. But we know Jurassic Park is fictitious, right? So there you go. But, you know, it, it makes for a very convincing story to bring them back in the movie. I think they did a study in Australia, actually, that DNA couldn't survive more than 6.8 million years, which is still a long time, but it's about 55 million years shy of the dinosaurs here. But anyway... Anyway, so yeah, he finally published uh, Jurassic Park in 1990. That's three years before the film was made, or released, actually. They probably started uh, doing it in 1992. And that was, you know, before Stephen and Michael even met. So it moved quite quickly. So like I said, he got the rights and they started filming. And Spielberg said, we've got to get this right. It was one of the biggest sums paid up front for a novel. A film that didn't even have a script yet, but Spielberg wasn't sure of how to do it. He was just sure that he wanted to do it. And he knew it was going to be a hit. And, you know, he was correct. He was a massive fan of King Kong growing up. He grew up watching monster movies. And it's pretty much what inspired him to make this movie. Hence why he made Jaws, one of the best monster movies ever made. And on the turn of the 90s, he said, well, we can actually do this well now. There's this thing called CGI that we can try and we can master it. And we've got Stan Winston, the animatronics expert, at his peak of his career. So let's just go all out and use both of them. So he made the money back, of course, because... You know, this film was a massive blockbuster hit. I mean, he had the money, of course, to fund it because he was sitting on the success of Close Encounters, E.T., Jaws, the Indiana Jones franchise, The Goonies, Produced Back to the Future, The Gremlin. So it was time for him to reclaim the map like he did in the 70s with Jaws and the 80s of E.T. So let's put a stamp on the 90s. And boy, was this the stamp of all stamps. Jurassic Park, 65 million years in the making. No one could ever imagine what they're about to see. So the screenplay actually used about 20% of the actual novel, according to the author, and he said the character of Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, was sort of his voice on his thoughts of genetic engineering and just general science. Spielberg, on the other hand, related more to Hammond, wanting to entertain. Obviously, the two characters are polar opposites, one thinking about the ethics of it and the other thinking about the entertainment value of it, hence why Malcolm is dressed in all black and Hammond is in all white, to further express their differences of opinion, not to mention their dislike for each other in the movie. I mean, Michael Crichton actually wrote the character of John Hammond as a sort of dark Walt Disney. In fact, in the novel, he is the story's main antagonist in the movie. In the book, he's very short-tempered, egotistical, typical billionaire, and he's just rather cold, to be honest. I mean, the whole reason he invites his uh, grandchildren to is just basically to soften Gennaro's views on the park, the lawyer, even when they go missing. He doesn't seem that concerned um, at all about the grandchildren. He's, they're just there for props. So he's a very different character in the book. Gennaro, the lawyer, um, he's not really explored in the movie, but in the book, he's basically the opposite of what he is in the film. And first off, he survives. Uh, and Hammond actually dies in the book. And um, Gennaro's actually a family man. He's an ex-football player who ends up helping Grant and the kids later on. He's more heroic. 
Um, but yeah, he's very misrepresented in the uh, the film. It was quite interesting, uh, the direction the film took from the source novel. I mean, the novel is worth reading. It really goes into depth about the ethics of what they're trying to achieve with a genetic mutation. And each character is built up rather well and have their own views on every, you know, every little aspect of what they're trying to do at Jurassic Park. You know, this egotistical, cold billionaire in the novel was played by the loving and charming, the late Sir Richard Attenborough. It's clear they went with a new direction of Hammond, which ended up working for the movie. I mean, Richard Attenborough, by trade, is a director, much like Spielberg, and probably that's why he casted him as Hammond, because he could appreciate the character's vision over the scientific consequences of it. It's quite funny, actually, because Spielberg is actually directing a man that beat him as Best Director at the 1983 Oscars. I think Attenborough directed Gandhi, and he won Best Director over Steven Spielberg's E.T., so that's quite an interesting fact. This was actually his first role as an actor in 14 years, so it was quite a thing to get Attenborough on board for this movie as an actor. I mean, Spielberg was very adamant about the casting of Hammond. He had his eyes set on a few people for the other roles, but he said Hammond had to be Richard Attenborough. So, anyway, he got it. I think he actually waited for Richard Attenborough to finish his film Chaplin instead of recasting a role. He did the same thing with Sam Neill as well, because he was filming a film called um, Family Pictures. And I think Sam Neill only had like a weekend off between shooting Family Pictures and Jurassic Park, like his biggest film of his career. So, yeah, quite interesting. Of course, Richard Attenborough is the older brother of naturalist David Attenborough, who, like his older brother's character in the movie, has his own collection of insects trapped in amber at his own home. So... You know, that's a quite cool irony there. But given the release of the film, Jurassic Park was incredibly successful. It was the highest grossing movie in history up until Titanic beat it four years later. And Titanic is still number three as of today. So it shows how massive Jurassic Park was. I mean, the budget for the film was, was around $60 million for the movie. I think it made it almost back the entire budget in the opening weekend where it made $45 million, which was a record that still hasn't been beaten, not even by Titanic. Um, the film ended up grossing over $1 billion worldwide. Spielberg was paid $250 million for the movie because he made a back-end deal, uh, deal with the box office sales. The highest amount of director was paid at the time. I mean, the success for the movie was the dinosaurs. I mean, that was why it was plain and simple. Mixed in with some relatable build-up characters. You know, Spielberg, you know, his aim was, the, you know, the reason his face lit up when Michael Crichton said he finished a book about dinosaurs was that he wanted there to be a film about monsters where they look real. They didn't look fake. And that is the whole reason why this film has survived and has been deemed a classic. The film was also billed as one of the most accurate films ever made that featured dinosaurs. I mean, after the film's release, it, gener it just generated so much interest in paleontology, much like how Indiana Jones grew interest in archaeology, or how when Top Gun came out, like the 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 applications for the Air Force went up by like forty percent. I mean, Friends came out a year later after Jurassic Park, and I don't think there's a mystery in why Ross as a paleontologist is probably riding off the success of Jurassic Park. But um, yeah, for a movie that is about dinosaurs, I mean, though, which is quite funny, the movie actually only consists of fifteen minutes of actual dinosaur footage, considering the movie is over two hours long. Nine of those uh, 15 minutes are the real-life animatronics designed by Stan Winston. The T-Rex itself weighed around 12,000 pounds and had to be very careful when it was around humans. The other six minutes was completely CGI. One of the first times CGI was used in a film with commercial success, I might add. I mean, for me, the reason why Spielberg is so good is that he humanizes big things like dinosaurs or aliens. He even said that he would... 
you know, he would, you know, he, he would, he would make a fight about getting the production team to make sure the dinosaurs would stop and scratch themselves, even though that had nothing to do with the plot of the movie. Something he learnt during ET to just humanize these, you know, over the top characters. Since we can't make them more, you know, you can't make them more relatable than them being on TV. But you know, make them do human stuff, and that's what he does with the T Rex. Just he just there's a shot of it just scratching itself. Oh, it's no purpose for the story, but. You know, Spielberg wanted that shot in there. He does the same thing with E.T. He does the same thing with Jaws. Like, you know, well, kind of underneath the water scene. That's just it, I'm being, if I'm being picky there. <laughs> but, you know, also the first time you see the um, the T-Rex, we see it from inside the car. And I think that's a very clever uh, shot from Spielberg. It's a great decision from Spielberg. It's as if we were seeing it first, like the characters are seeing it for the first time, experiencing it, sharing that fear. The iconic scene... Uh, you know, where the ripples are in the glass of water. I mean, for the special effects team, by the way, who were creating revolutionary dinosaurs, never before seen things, working with animatronics weighing over £10,000, creating CGI for the first time on dinosaurs, said that the hardest special effects stunt to pull was the rippling water, <laughs> which signified the footsteps of the dinosaur before, uh, because they had no idea how to pull it off. They were like, how do we do this? How can we possibly do that? So Spielberg was like, well, he wanted the T-Rex to announce its presence somehow before the audience saw it and got the idea of watching the mirror in his car vibrate from the bass effects while listening to Earth, Wind and Fire. So when uh, Michael Latiria tried to replicate, he's like the special effects advisor, he tried to replicate that with water and it was it was harder than any of the dinosaur effects, he said. Nobody knew how to do it, but told Spielberg they could. They just like, give him, give me some time. So anyway, the night before the shoot, uh, Latiria put a glass of water on a guitar and when he plucked the strings, the water caused a, ri- a little ripple. So for that scene, they fed guitar strings under the dashboard to get the effect. And there's a man on the floor plucking the strings to achieve in that effect. And that's how they did it. Very simple. But I guess if you had no idea how to do it, yeah, it wouldn't come to your head, I guess. But yeah. But it's the same way, you know, um, You know, when I was saying the first time you see uh, the T-Rex is from inside the car. And I think that's a very clever decision. It's the same way you see you first see um, the shark in Jaws, just from a casual shot um in front of chief brody and i love the way he directs i mean also notice how there is no musical score in the background when you first see the t-rex to really focus your attention on this creature he does the same thing in jaws as well just right after you see it then you have that massive iconic line from chief brody we're going to need a bigger boat but in this one it's just complete silence and that roar that echoes through and it's just those expressions it's i mean it's the same thing he does in Jaws. I mean, both films are somewhat similar. They both revolve around a vacation spot threatened by an out-of-control animal. They they both even open up with a death from an animal that you don't see, and it's not until halfway through the movie do you finally see the creature, the T-Rex and the shark. So very both similar in that aspect. I mean, Jaws is even playing in Jurassic Park's uh, Ned, you know Nedry, the kind of uh, big guy. Um, if you have a little look, if you pause it, he's actually watching Jaws on his computer. You have to look really closely at that scene when he's arguing with Hammond on his computer. But he's, um, yeah, he's um, actually watching Jaws at one of the most iconic points as well. Um, wonder how Spielberg chose that scene. But you know, I love how Hammond um, is going on about his, mo- you know, the motto he says in this movie, we we spared no expense. And yet the reason these dinosaurs escaped in the first place is because Nedry was complaining about his pay. So if he truly preached what he kept saying, there would have been no casualties or death on the island. But then again, we wouldn't have had a movie, would we? So, you know, <laughs> but so one of the big stars in the movie, other than the T-Rex, was the Velociraptors. In fact, the ending of the movie was originally the raptors being killed by the T-Rex skeleton at the end of the more iconic twist, saying that these dinosaurs 
can adapt to the new age and that they belong in the bones and and but Spielberg was like no I don't want that because originally the the big T-Rex skeleton was just going to fall on the velociraptors and that would be it uh, but Spielberg was like, it's a little silly, it's a bit convenient. I get the metaphorical sense of what we're trying to do here. That's why they had the big close-up of it earlier on, but I don't want that anymore. He's like, well, no. So two weeks before the ending, the you know, they were like, right, we need to, you know, we need to figure out what we're going to do here. And he and Spielberg was like, I want the T-Rex, who he considered the star of the show, to make one final appearance and remove the irony and just make it literal. Instead of the T-Rex bones, just have the T-Rex get in there. So two weeks before the ending, they completely used CGI this time for the T-Rex to kill off the raptors at the end. And I mean, for point of reference, anything showing a whole dinosaur was CGI and anything showing parts of the dinosaur was animatronic. So that's sort of a cool content to give you there, good guideline. With the last scene, though, since they really had to prepare for the T-Rex when you first see it, they had to skip like five steps and they went straight to CGI. But Spielberg was so adamant that this had to be the new ending where the T-Rex eventually became the hero and saved Grant, Ellie and the kids. So, yeah, he, he said, don't rush it. We'll go over budget. I'll pay the pro- I'll pay the price. Just do it properly. So he even saves the day in Jurassic World as well. It's the exact same T-Rex as well. You can tell from the scars it has from the scratches of the Velociraptor. I don't know what the life expectancy is of a Jurassic, uh, T-Rex, but it's the same one. But the Velociraptors, I mean, were changed drastically in this movie. They are barely more than 1.6 feet tall, apparently. They would just come above my knees in real life. But Spielberg changed the vision to have, you know, something more scary to a human who couldn't just hide by not moving or in a small space somewhere. It needed to be more humanized again, going back to how Spielberg likes to play with that idea. And I mean, besides for the very brief glimpse we get right at the start of the movie, we don't actually see an adult raptor until like an hour and 40 minutes into the movie. Another trademark thing Spielberg does to really build up this anticipation like like he does in Jaws. <coughs> Excuse me. But what's interesting is that this film was slated ever so slightly, not massively, just slightly, by paleontologists and scientists about the size of these velociraptors since they didn't look anything like that. But... Several years after the release of this movie, they discovered a fossil of a velociraptor's skin that was entirely covered in feathers, or was covered in feathers, not now. And that meant that they implied that the movie actually got it right before science does, because Grant's theory in this movie is that they share a common ancestor with birds and could have possibly evolved into birds, and that's why they disappeared and it wasn't an asteroid. And I think one thing we can learn from Michael Crichton's book is that just because we have the power to do something like genetic engineering doesn't mean we should. We should sometimes stop and think to do something. Just because you can do something doesn't mean we should do it as quickly as possible and try and sell it. It's the way of the world, though, and that's a very good message on why Jurassic Park failed. Obviously, I guess the bigger message here is to never play God. Don't tempt fate. Just leave the order of nature to itself. Otherwise, balance will eventually restore no matter what. You know, humans try to change and interfere with us. And as Malcolm or Michael Crichton rightly puts it, life will find a way. But anyway, that's all I have time for with Jurassic Park. No denying the effect this film has on children, the love for dinosaurs, the industry in terms of special effects and storytelling. Just pure nostalgia. It ticks every box and he reignited our love for these lovely creatures that once walked on this planet. But anyways, please subscribe to me on my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and I'm also on Google. And you can follow me on Instagram. It's Film Exploration AH, all lowercase or one word. And once again, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.